You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, Jim, no doubt, The Replacements, one of the most important bands in our lives, For sure. uh, both as journalists and as fans. 80s Underground helped define it, 79 through 91, one of the most important bands in the world to the fans who loved them during that era. No Didn't big, sell any records. No, no big hits, but a huge influence on uh, bands that came after in that alternative rock era. A lot of bands influenced by The Replacements. Reunited in 2012, and the proof was there. The crowds that came out to see them were exponentially larger than the crowds that saw them in their original heyday. The Mats, as fans always called them, uh, never took themselves seriously. In fact, you know, famous for shooting themselves in the foot, drinking, self-destruction. That's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. People also know that Paul Westerberg is one of the most admired songwriters uh, by everyone who's followed, people who really are not afraid to wear their heart on their sleeve to talk deeply about serious issues, even in, in as silly a thing as rock and roll. The whole story is captured in the book Trouble Boys by journalist Bob Mayer. We spoke with him in 2016 when the book came out, and we are revisiting that conversation today. Bob, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me, guys. It's good to talk to both of you again. The 10 years you put into this book, it is really the story of the replacements, but also the story of a uniquely American rock band, the story of an era in rock history, the story of the power of art to help people escape. Yeah, I did. Once I realized the the weight of the story, the gravity of it, the depth and the scope, it, it felt like this was an opportunity to tell a, a, both a bigger and a smaller story, um, a story of an era in, in rock music, in the music business, in the way bands got together and took shape, and, and also a, a smaller story in terms of the lives, the intimate details of this group of people's lives. Uh, and the the tragedies and and the triumphs of, of of those lives. So it became much more than a story of of just a rock band. I think. I hope. Who were the four guys in the Replacements, and how did they end up making music together? It's really the Replacements were kind of a merger of a band, a pre-existing band called Dog Breath, which featured uh, Bob Stinson, his uh, younger brother Tommy Stinson, and Chris Mars, uh, Bob on guitar, Tommy on bass, Chris on drums. And a fellow by the name of Paul Westerberg, who at that point was uh, kicking around uh, some South Minneapolis bands, mostly uh, playing lead guitar and and working as a janitor uh, and doing that only so he could pay for his guitar and amp. uh, (laughs) um, And in the fall of 1979, they hooked up sort of uh, both by accident and I guess by the hand of fate. Paul was walking back from his janitor job. And as he was walking back home, he heard this volume, this sound, this thing that sort of uh, enraptured him. And as he drew closer to this basement, he heard this incredible thunder coming out of the basement. Unbeknownst to him, that was Dog Breath, the Stinson Brothers and Chris Mars playing. A couple months later, a mutual friend insisted that Paul come over and check out his friend Chris's band. Uh, and lo and behold, they pull up, and uh, Paul pulls up and sees this band. It sounds like the stuff out of a movie, but it turns out, you know, it, it was true. In fact, uh, he'd kind of been hearing them for months on his walk, wondering, who is this mm. band? I'd sure like to join <laughs> join them. And, and it turns out it uh, it was the band, I guess, he was, he was made for and, and that they were made for each other. Stay right there!
So to be clear, uh, you know, Paul joined an existing band. It was really Bob's band, right? In a sense, yeah. I mean, Dog Breath wasn't a band so much that was playing out. They were really just kind of a neighborhood band, a basement band. Occasionally they would play, uh, you know, parties and, and local house things, uh, but hadn't really gotten on a stage. Paul had sort of been on the stage a little bit, so it really was kind of Paul joining this existing group that really wasn't doing anything. So I think they found a kind of uh, unified ambition, certainly Bob and Paul did, in, in wanting to get out of the basement and get on a real stage. Well, who, who were those Stinson brothers, Bob, and, and how had they started making music? They were all Minnesotans. Everybody in the band was native to Minnesota. Bob, though, was the product ultimately of some abuse and, and a very difficult childhood uh, at the hands of essentially the person who was his stepfather and Tommy's father. And so the first decade of his life was really, um, he was victim of that. He got sent into the state juvenile system, juvenile jails, group homes, that kind of thing, and really began to sort of suffer the effects of the abuse, I think, that he had experienced as a child, uh, which was both sexual, physical, mental. And in really trying to reconnect with the world, he found the way to do that was through music. He picked up the guitar and began practicing obsessively, uh, learning obsessively, uh, as I say, in juvenile jails and group homes. And then when he finally got out at the age of 17, almost 18, and was released back to his family, he had an ambition, and that was to start a band. And his younger brother Tommy was uh, sort of a wayward child at that point, getting into trouble, had been arrested a few times for shoplifting, and was very much headed down the same path. And Bob kind of scooped him, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, and said, here, you're going to learn how to play bass. And really, that's how the, the, the Stinson brothers began making music. So no exaggeration to say music saved their lives. It, it is not an exaggeration at all. And, you know, I asked Tommy Stinson, a number of times, do you ever think about what your fate would have been if, if not for, for Bob sort of rescuing you and putting the bass in your hands? And he said, you know, it was petty theft. It would have been grand larceny, grand theft, and then who knows, you know, murder. And it certainly would have meant a life in jail. And as, as the book uh, first uh, section details there, the title is Jail, Death, or Janitor. And that was the answer that Westerberg gave when he was asked, you know, what would any of your fates have been if not for the replacements, jail, death, or janitor, and I think it was particularly true in the Stinson's case. These guys were all high school dropouts. Um, came from middle or lower middle class uh, environments where there wasn't a whole lot of ambition. You were kind of probably going to do what your dad did if you were lucky, be a sort of uh, a laborer, a worker, a lifer, work in a government job. And I don't think any of them wanted that. And I don't think any of them were really cut out or suited for regular uh, day job employment as it would turn out. But I think what gave them a power was their limitations musically in terms of their personality. They found each other and clicked in a way, as Paul says in the book, we understood each other in ways that most guys didn't. And I think that's why they came together so quickly. And from the moment that Paul joined the band, within a couple months, they went from having one or two songs to having 20, 30, 40 songs and really having coalesced as a band and having found this sound together. So the big thread in your book, Bob, is that this band is a refuge for these trouble boys, as the book is titled. Right. And at the same time, you've also got this almost subconscious level of 
you know, screwing things up, mm. getting the opportunities, screwing them up. I think it began with Westerberg. I think Westerberg, if you come to know him, he has a degree of, as I speculate in the book, oppositional defiance syndrome, where he just, if you say black, he says white. You know, he he had, I think, problems with authority. And I think if you look at their backgrounds, they all kind of had problems with authority, um, certainly Stinson's. And, and, and even Chris Mars, in his own quiet way, was a very chaotic sort of force and presence, or could be if he chose to. And so I think, you know, that was another thing that bonded them. And and propelled them in the way that they performed, in the way they acted in, in nightclubs, on the road, and ultimately in record company offices and recording studios. And that seemed to be in place from uh, the very start. Like, what were those first shows like when these guys started playing together? Well, it's interesting for a band that would really make its reputation as drinkers, their first couple shows, or two of the first three, came in kind of sober houses and sober dances uh, for teens. Um, You know, Minnesota being the land of 10,000 lakes is also the land of 10,000 rehab centers. In the 70s, I think any kid that got uh, in trouble, they would immediately put them in rehab. Out of that, there were, you know, a lot of teens who were were sober and they needed entertainment. And so there was a kind of little circuit of uh, sober dances and sober houses that they would play. And as it happened, the replacements, the the first couple gigs they played, the first one, which they played as the impediments at a place in St. Paul called Team House, which was a sober, chemical-free atmosphere. They got busted in the parking lot for drinking in between sets. And and the guy (laughs) read them the riot act and said, you'll never play in this town again. Hence the name change from the impediments to the replacements. And then they're kind of quote-unquote breakthrough gig, which was for Peter Jesperson, the man who would discover them and sign them to Twin Tone, was at a a place called the Bataclan, again, a kind of chemical-free, sober performance space. And they got caught drinking before the show and never played the gig. They got kicked out before that one. So uh, that was, you know, the scene that that Peter walked into is this band uh, having been booted from the gig before they could play a note. Peter Jesperson does eventually get to see the band play, uh, and he becomes their manager, their champion. Jesperson gets them signed to Twin Tone Records. It's a local, independent uh, label, and they put out Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, and Stink in 1981 and 82. Just saying those titles makes me smile. It encompasses everything you need to know about the replacements in that era. How was the band developing as a live band? Because as they begin to cross the country uh, playing behind these records, people are buzzing about them. I think they evolved into a very tight band because you're talking about an era of American punk and hardcore punk where people wanted their songs fast and tightened together. And although the replacements could be meandering in between songs, uh, tuning up the first couple years, if you listen to them in 81, 82, really into 83, they were a really tight combo. And I think it was that tightness that allowed them later on to get as loose as they did. Yeah, well, I never forget the first time I saw them circa Sorry Moff got to take out the trash. Mm. Um, they were finished and they'd had enough and there were a lot of hardcore kids with mohawks. But uh, Paul was not done. Uh, <laughs> the other guys went off, went to the bar and Paul sat behind the drums and he pulled some kids with mohawks out of the audience and they proceeded to play Louie Louie for half an hour. <laughs> right. Badly, horribly. <laughs> but what it said to me is here's this band named The Replacements. Uh, it was yet another reminder you can do this. Right. Anybody can do this. You can be us. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, the replacements get kind of lumped into that sort of DIY American indie era. And I think in some ways they were 
very opposite of that. None of them drove. They didn't have driver's license, so they couldn't get to the gigs. That's about as undiy as you can get. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> where I think they do kind of fit into the spirit of that time is about the separation of the band, the artist, and the audience. They would pull people on stage. They would switch instruments. There was this kind of free-flowing quality to who they were and the music they played and, and the atmosphere they created in those shows where I think it made people feel like, yeah, I could do that. But more, I think it gave the audience a really deep connection to the band from, from the get-go. And I think that's why, partly, why they have continued to sort of remain in people's hearts and minds for so long is because they were closer, I think, to their audience than a lot of bands. You know, the big part of this band, too, Bob, why we're even talking about them today, I think, is because of, uh, you know, Westerberg's songs, but also how they were presented by Mm -hmm. this band. The band was a key component of the creative thing. You really draw out the essential tension between what Westberg was trying to write and what the band wanted to play. And there was a sense of, you know, we don't want any ballads, we don't want any slow ones, you know, don't get sentimental on us, Paul. He was fighting against all these kind of tensions within the band about what kind of music they wanted to play, what they would allow him to write. It was almost like he had to sneak in a song like Johnny's Gonna Die early sure. on, something that was a little bit more sensitive. Johnny always needs more than he takes. Forgets a couple chords, forgets a couple breaks. And everybody tells me that Johnny is hot. Johnny needs something, but he ain't got. And Johnny's gonna Well, and that was the era, too. You know, yeah. it, it, I think Paul deserves a fair amount of credit because coming out of that early punk and hardcore, American hardcore era, we're talking, you know, 80 to 82, uh, the sort of expression of feeling and emotion and sentiment the way Westerberg would become a master of was fairly verboten. So I think he, he that evolved. You know, you've got Johnny's Gonna Die on one record. On, on the first record, you've got Go on the second record. And then you get Within Your Reach on Hootenanny. Then it's clear that, wow, these songs are just as powerful as the, the dumb, fun rockers. Grow without so much Can die without you Live without your touch I'll die within your I think Jesperson, their manager, deserves a lot of credit because early on, Paul was, as early as he was writing all the punk and rock and hardcore songs on Sorry Ma and Stink, he was quietly slipping Jesperson these tapes of these ballads and, and things. And, you know, maybe another manager, another person wouldn't have encouraged that side of him, but Peter did. And I think that was important in, in Westerberg's evolution and, and the evolution of the band, ultimately. You can really hear this incredible dichotomy on Let It Be, which comes out in 1984. We did a classic album dissection of this record once, if you can uh, go back and listen to it on soundopinions.org. But the thing that always strikes both both Greg and me is this record can go from a goofy Kiss cover or Tommy Gets His Tonsils Out to Answering Machine or Unsatisfied, these incredible soulful songs about bearing your heart. You know, that is that is part of what made The Replacements great, I think. You know, you, you, if you're lucky, a great band will get you in the head and the heart or the heart or the gut, but very few bands touch you in the head, heart, and gut all three places. And The Replacements had <laughs> the ability also to... The 
crotch at times. Yeah, yeah, and the crotch too. You know, it, it, but I, I think it's rare that you get a band that has the the sort of classic rock and roll qualities that has the great songs and songwriters and and writerly aspect to it, and 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 has a kind of sense of humor as well. I think it's rare, almost non-existence for a band to sort of tick off all those boxes. And, and I think that, in a way, is what makes The Replacements so special. In addition to the fact that I think what fans relate to is that they know they're getting a pure, real experience. I think The Replacements were who they were 100% of the time, on stage, off, in their songs, in record company offices, <laughs> wherever it might have been. Um, and I think people instinctively understood that, that, look, these guys aren't putting on a mask. They're not putting on an act. It's not a, a show that they sort of turn or a light switch they turn on and off. It's like, this is who they are. This is what they are. And I think people are attracted to that, you know, realness, for, for lack of a better term. But uh, I think that's the thing that really shines through with the replacements even 25 years after their career in the main is over. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Replacements biographer Bob Mayer, picking up with the band's move to a major label. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim Dirigatis, and today we're joined by Bob Mayer, author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. We talked a little bit about the band's infamously volatile live shows. I mean, the drunkenness, the sloppiness, the improvised covers in the middle of the set. Uh, And that seemed to really become what the band was known for around the time Let It Be was released in 1984. Yeah, you know, I mean, we can't underscore enough because many people didn't see them live on the first go-around. The first night would be the greatest rock and roll show you ever saw. These heartbreaking songs, this incredible, raucous sound. And the next night... They'd had too much drink, too much drugs, too much of each other. It's scary. It's belligerent. It's sloppy. You feel ripped off. You can't take your eyes off it because you don't know what's going to happen next. It's always real, (laughs) but it's not fun necessarily. Well, that was the funny thing about it is uh, after a certain period – they kind of almost developed there an, an audience kind of like the Deadheads where people would follow them around show to show regionally or certainly in certain parts of the country because you were never guaranteed to go to any one show and have it be a good show. You might have to go to two or three to really mm-hmm. get, the, yeah. get, get the good one. But within those three shows, you might get a, a whole mix of experiences and, and, and run the gamut of emotions from uh, feeling satisfied to feeling ripped off to feeling, uh, I don't know, you know, frightened, scared, <laughs> enjoying well, it. Well, th- th- there started to be this distasteful element as with an artist like Cat Power or Daniel Johnson, uh, where certain people showed up hoping that chaos would happen tonight and that the, the boys would hurt themselves. Yeah, and it's funny. You look at it now in an era of, of Twitter and social media and, and the internet, it's it's almost impossible to think of the replacements in a way existing in that world because you wonder if they would have made it past the, if club owners would have had them past the first tour. On the Let It Be tour, they were playing these covers, heavy, crazy sets. That was the first time, you know, fall of 83 into 84 where they really kind of developed that reputation of the, the drunken mats. <laughs> And 
And then by 85 and even into 86 and 87, people were still coming to see this thing that had really happened a couple years before. And some nights they would oblige the audience and some nights they wouldn't. But it's it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. They were a band that's, that's wrapped up in so much romance and myth. And I don't think rock and roll bands, certainly in this day and age, you can be wrapped up in myth when, you know, there's video and set lists and everything instantaneously of everything you do. And so yeah. part of what their strength was, was this uncertainty, this risk you were taking as a as a patron, as a ticket buyer to come to this show. What am I going to get? Who are these guys? And what are they going to give me on any given night? The, the replacement's craziness. The, those antics don't let up even when they move to a major label. Seymour Stein in 1985 signs the group to Sire. Sire is, of course, part of Warner Brothers. Uh, now, Stein is, is, is uh, taking a chance on this band, and that's saying something for a guy who worked with both Madonna and the Ramones. And uh, they reward him instantly by, uh, you know, going on Saturday Night Live and botching it thoroughly. Right. And that comes in 1986. They've just released their their major label debut, Tim. And they get the call last minute, of course, to be perfectly suited to, for the task to be replacements for another act that's dropped out on Saturday Night Live. And, and they did the show. And I think if you look back on the performance now, certainly the first song, Bastards of Young, it's a, it's a towering kind of rock and roll moment on television, particularly in the heart of the big 80s when you didn't see bands as loud or ragged or, or as unpolished as that. As real. As real. During the song, Paul sort of let go of, let's say, an epitaph, uh, somewhat off mic, but uh, enough to sort of raise uh, Lauren Michaels' hackles who read the Mariah Act backstage. You know, it, it was a real moment, a real television moment, and, and a real moment that kind of defined the band uh, for good in, in some ways. It certainly defined their legend in a positive way, but for bad in terms of their career and how, you know, the power brokers, the, the gatekeepers of the industry would view them as, as a risk more than anything else. spend a lot of time chronicling uh, the recordings of each of the records. It seems like the joy started to creep out uh, once they went to Warner Brothers. They, they didn't have as much fun in the studio. Well, part of that was, you know, with the replacements, every record was a kind of reaction to the last record or the current circumstance they were in, and a lot of it became personnel stuff. I mean, Bob, the situation with Bob in terms of his membership in the band and his own personal problems sort of cropping up came really came about during the making of Tim, and he's He's on that in a sense, but he wasn't a part of that process. And then, you know, each record is almost a different lineup of the, la- the last four records, if you mm. really look at it. Mm. And you could sort of say that the, the lack of stability or the kind of internal turmoil also kind of dictated whether there were records were fun or not fun. But I, I do think the material on a lot of those records really does stand up. I think if you look at something like Tim, that's where you have your kind of classic mid-period Westerberg, the standards, you know, Left of the Dial, Bastards of Young, uh, Little Mascara, uh, you know, uh, Here Comes a Regular, that kind of stuff. Everybody wants to be special here They call your name out loud and
Bob Stinson seemed to be the most troubled member of the band, at least outwardly. He's the one that's always viewed as kind of the victim, uh, the guy that got lost, the guy who eventually died. What, what exactly was up with Bob Stinson? Why wasn't he able to hang in there uh, through the duration of this band that he founded? Well, I think it was about so much more. I mean, the, the, Bob's situation was far more complex than, than most people realize, maybe even people in the band and, and around the band. Um, he was someone who was, as I say, suffering some very serious traumas from his childhood that he never really got over and that in many ways uh, he dealt with uh, through drink and, and drugs. And I think as the replacement success grew, as the pressures became more, and in a way as the focus of the band went away from the group and more towards Paul and Paul and Tommy, I think he felt sort of isolated and marginalized. And that triggered a lot of the the feelings that he had uh, having gone through a very difficult and traumatic childhood and teenage years. And so I think, you know, Bob's problems were bigger than the replacements. They just happened to sort of play out during the life of the replacements, particularly at the point where they were at their most uh, visible, you know, uh, 85, 86, when he was essentially fired from the band. Really, he never got the help that he needed um, in terms of his mental health, in terms of his, uh, you know, the byproducts of his mental health, which were his his drinking and, and his drug use. But of course, the ultimate tragedy is he died way too young at the age of 35. And, and it wasn't really from an overdose or, or, or anything. His, his basically expired of natural causes. But, you know, 35 to die of natural causes, he, he had put himself and had been through a lot um, emotionally and physically during those 35 years. great mystery of the replacements bob is uh you know they get signed to warner brothers and the entire music world if not the world at large but people in the know you know writers djs tastemakers love this band they feel a special connection to this band they make please to meet me Mm -hmm. it has the production values sure it has the hooks it has those incredible songs it doesn't sell why why did they never Breakthrough. Well, I think the book, in a way, is an effort throughout its many hundreds of pages to kind of explore that and understand that. And what I came away from it was that it wasn't any one factor. It wasn't just the fact that they didn't help themselves with their behavior and their antics and alienating people. Certainly, that that was one of the causes why things were more difficult. But um, you know, as you say, they had the critical respect, they had the adulation, they had the word of mouth. There was a point, certainly in their trajectory, around the time of Please to Meet Me, where it seemed like, yes, this is a band that's going to break big. Um, the American rock and roll market was was open for a band like that. Uh, I think ultimately into that void, you see other bands step in later, like Guns N' Roses and, and, and uh, other groups. But they did have their window. And I think what happened is, 
When Pleased to Meet Me came out, the record company decided to choose The Ledge as the first single. It's a wonderful song, a powerful song. It was a song that maybe radio could understand. It was more like a classic rock blue oyster cult song than an alternative song. Um, But it was a song about teen suicide, and they, Replacements, had the very bad luck of releasing that right at a time where there was a um, series of these suicide packs and teen suicide events in America, and MTV got very skittish about playing the video. They pulled their support. Subsequently, radio pulled their support. So from the outset, that record, which had been set up as the breakthrough, had its legs cut out from under it. By the time they're done with that album cycle, the rules have changed. It's not just a gold album is good enough. R.E.M. has gone on to sell a million and have a pop hit. And so out of Please to Meet Me, now the pressure is ratcheted up and they go in to make Don't Tell a Soul, which was the kind of make or break album for them. And and I think by that point, you're talking about almost 10 years into the history of the group. Relationships are starting to fray. The dynamic has changed. Paul is writing different songs. So I guess that's a long way of saying timing. You know, timing is everything in, in the music business. You can have great songs. You can have great talent. But if you're not doing the right things at the right time, I think that's where careers get, get made or lost. And in the replacements career, I think commercially at that time, certainly it was lost because of those factors, all of them. There's a great anecdote, too, about the relationship with the major label. You've got this kind of ad hoc family or gang, and they're hanging on by their teeth, and they've got a chance to do something big here in terms of having a finally a big corporation behind them. And Paul doesn't play the game. I think a very telling anecdote is the one you mentioned about the head of Warner Brothers. <laughs> Mo uh, Austin, yeah. This is around the time of Don't Tell a Soul, and you know, as kind of the leader of the band, he had to go and kiss the ring, as it were, of Mo Austin and say, hey, could you give our record a push? And... And of course, Mo, having worked for Frank Sinatra for many years and being familiar with the culture of favors, uh, said, OK, well, on an unrelated matter, I have a favor to ask of you. Uh, would you play this uh, mall opening, uh, which turned out to be the Mall of America or groundbreaking, I should say. <laughs> and so Paul was uncomfortable with that idea. And he said no. And of course, Tommy said, well, you know, we played worse places than malls. We played at Taco Bell once in, in the early days or something. Mm-hmm. But um that's, you know, that's a little bit in miniature kind of the replacement story. It was about these fears, the fear of selling out, the fear of being judged, the fear of, you know, what will I become if I do this? If it's a Placement's career on the major labels in the latter half of their career played out exactly as it probably should have. 
they came up short and that kept them interesting and kept them pure for a big segment of their fan base and, and, and rock and roll fans. And I asked Paul one time, I was at his house, we were doing the course of the interviews, and I said, you know, what if you'd have had a hit? What if I'll Be You had gotten a number two on the charts and, and you'd sold a million records? And even if that was it, what if you'd had the, been that proverbial one-hit wonder? And he said, well, you wouldn't be here right now. You know, I don't know if that's true, but it's quite possible that so much of, of, of the romance and intrigue of the replacements was tied up in, in the idea that they fell short. A beat back from a guitar that was thrown <laughs> on stage by a roadie. The roadies took over that at the last of that song. Dan left the stage and the roadies took over. What a wild conclusion it was. But is it the conclusion? <laughs> Only the replacements know for sure. They're so unpredictable, though. Are they going to come back or... Are they going to break up? Maybe they'll break up, and then they'll get back together, and then they'll come back. I believe they're not no, going to be back. No. So the band comes crashing to an end mm. on stage, appropriately enough, in Grant Park, one of the biggest crowds they'll play to. Yeah. You know, why did the replacements end? I think it was, you know, bands have a lifespan, and I think 10, 12 years for, for any band is a long time. For a band that doesn't reach those commercial heights and doesn't have the benefit of fame and money and, and the cushion that all that stuff gives you, it's very hard to sort of keep it going. And I think it was just inevitable that after 12 years together and, and eight albums that it would find its ultimate conclusion. If the replacements had had that moment, you were saying, if they'd had a hit... You know, what What do you think, you know, because it's part of this great period in music that all led up to the alternative uh, era, sure. you know, paved the groundwork that made Nirvana and all the alternative stuff possible without ever reaping any of the benefits, you know. Right. Paul says something funny, you know, in the epilogue of the book. He says, you know, we were we were 10 years behind and five years ahead. And I think that's that's really true in a, in a, in a general sense. You can almost see the replacements being more successful 10 years earlier, fitting in with the faces and Mott the Hoople and Slade sure. and having a kind of success in that environment. And you can also see them being certainly having more success in a post-Nirvana alternative radio MTV world where alternative radio has more power and, and, and impact. Really, it's that question ultimately becomes a question of timing. They were 10 years behind, they were five years ahead, and they were stuck where they were, which is in the heart of the 80s. But despite that, they clearly had an impact on fans, other bands, uh, underground acclaim. When did you start to hear their influence in popular music? I think it was a few years later that you really saw the replacement's impact. And in a weird way, I don't think any one band has captured the replacement's sound or identity. But I think a lot of different bands have taken a sliver of what Westerberg or The Replacements do and become very successful with it. And I think it started in the mid-90s. You look at Green Day, who kind of took that template of Sorry Ma, you know, the mm -hmm. melodic pop-punk stuff with a lot of smart words and putting that together, and they became very successful. look at a band like the Goo Goo Dolls. They took the adult pop yeah. ballady side of Westerberg and, and commercialized it and, you know, sort of heightened it and made it, I think, more uh, appealing to the masses. Even though the moment passed me by, I still can't turn away. 
there's other bands like Wilco. You know, Jeff Tweedy, you know, he talked to me about seeing uh, the replacements open up for X, having no idea who they were, and it sort of, within seconds, seeing Paul fall off the stage, and it completely changed his life. <laughs> and he wanted to learn, and, ha- and how much of his songwriting sort of drew on that. Take the guitar player for a ride See, he ain't never been satisfied so I think a lot of bands in various levels with various levels of commercial success, all probably more commercially successful than the replacements, drew on these different sides of the replacements personality. So I think the influence is there and it, and it is pervasive, but it's sort of spread out. So maybe it's not, you know, there isn't one band that sounds exactly like the replacements. We've been talking to Bob Mayer, the author of the definitive Replacements biography, Trouble Boys. Bob, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. We want to hear from you. What impact did the Replacements have on your life? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we come back, we'll revisit a live in-studio performance from the mighty Mission of Burma. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed nationally by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with my partner, Greg Cott. And as we said, the replacements never quite got their due. The same goes for the next group we're going to talk to, Mission of Burma. These post-punk pioneers released only a handful of records before calling it quits in 1982. One EP, one album, some singles. Then, 20 years later, they reunited and, rare in rock history, came back as strong and as inspired as ever. Unfortunately, this summer, they disbanded again after being pretty much inactive since 2016. This time, they say the split is for good. But in 2006, when they were reunited, they performed at the Pitchfork Music Festival here in Chicago, and we were lucky enough to have them stop by our studios with their instruments standing as the loudest band ever to record at WBEZ. We're pleased to welcome the men of Mission of Burma, Roger Miller, Peter Prescott, Clint Connolly, Bob Weston. Gentlemen, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Man, I can't believe you guys have nothing better to do than, than to hang with us after Wait. having played yesterday. 19,000 people at the Pitchfork Music <laughs> Festival in Chicago. That was just a warm-up for this. This is the one we've had our uh, eyes on for weeks. Yeah. Now, well, that, that was a pretty amazing event. The Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park in Chicago, a big independent rock festival, uh, 19,000 people out there. At one point, I was thinking to myself, this may have been more people then might have seen you play in the entire first incarnation of the band. I'm just wondering, would that have been far from the truth? That sounds fairly accurate. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Quite possible. Well, and the fascinating thing is the median age, there were a lot of high schoolers, there were a lot of young college kids, Mm -hmm. and uh, here you guys are essentially in your third decade. But the thing that I think Greg and I are most excited about, I mean, it'd it'd be all well and good, you know, where we live in our youth, but you don't suck. (laughs) <laughs> Rare indeed is the list of bands that have come back for a second act and have delivered as good as the first. That's uh, the ultimate compliment when it has some sort of contemporary use, you know? Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, none of us prefer to be nostalgic. No one wants to be that, and I guess we went way out of our way to avoid it. 
And the interesting thing is, and you guys are all, to a degree, students of music and music history, and you know the odds are not good <laughs> for bands coming not, back and being good. anywhere nearly at the level that they were in the first place. So obviously that must have weighed on you to even like attempt to do this after basically um, dissolving in 83, not because for the usual reasons, we hate each other or we Drug run abuse. out of ideas. <laughs> it was sort of a natural end to the band, which we'll get into in a minute, but what was the impetus to go forward at that point and keep trying to do it? Well, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think we were, uh, this is Clint, I think we were aware that there was a bit of a roll of the dice here. There was a considerable amount of trepidation on my point. You know, I kind of sensed that goodwill had kind of accrued around the band and what we were about over the almost 20 years that we didn't play. It was quite remarkable. It was wonderful. You know, you'd kind of still hear our name in the conversation, still people referencing or whatever. It was always really cool. And uh, it crossed my mind that we were about to possibly squander all this goodwill that had <laughs> accumulated around our good name. Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of get one pass. You're allowed to come back yeah. and do some reunion right. shows and play uh-huh. the old stuff. And then the second time, it's like, okay, what do you got now? Mm-hmm. Why should we care? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it came <laughs> down to a faith in ourselves, not to sound hokey, but I think we all have, you know, really good impulses. I think we trust each other, and that's a huge part of it. I think it's really, I, I'm really proud of the uh, records we've made since we've been back together. So. I think that we had an advantage that we folded kind of before we had completed the actual cycle that was Mission of Burma, so... For us to reform again in 2002, there was a lot of leftover stuff that hadn't been done. So in a way, it, was a, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a breakup and a reunion. It was more of a, a cessation and a continuation. Yeah, just put it on hold for <laughs> yeah. 20 years. All right, so you guys are all set up. Would you guys play us a tune? Yes. Are we going?
Why is that song not being played uh, everywhere in America right now? Every commercial alt-rock station should be playing twice right now. That's because Peter Prescott has not delivered the fat wads of, of cash. It's <laughs> uh, a matter, Peter. It's the only reason. Come on, Peter. Guys, uh, I want to get back to something that we talked about earlier a little bit. By 83, you'd put out this amazing album, an EP, a couple of singles, and then uh, Mission of Burma basically went away. Roger, what happened at that point? Well, uh, Technically, it happened because... Uh, my tinnitus was worsening, and le- these pitches every couple months, a new pitch would appear. It would start beeping, then it would get solid, and it would. I knew that it would never go away for the rest of my life. You know, it's freaky. So that was the reason why I stopped playing in the band. Which, you know, I, I think they tried another, another guitarist, but it's. I guess it didn't work. Tinnitus is is a ringing in the ears, a constant ringing in the ears. It comes from loud. Sound, generally, right? is, generally the cause is loud sound. Yeah. And you were the the most suck, uh, the second most famous sufferer of this. Uh, yeah, I was the, I was after the post, Pete Townsend. Right, I was the yeah. post punk poster child. <laughs> <science. laughs> yeah, it was you and Pete, but you and Pete are both back making music, loud music. Proof of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it such though that the the technology's changed that now you can be really loud and powerful on stage, but but not be killing yourself? On- well, it is interesting. You know, the world kind of catches up because now you know tons and tons of musicians have tinnitus. It's not a novelty anymore. But, you know, I mean, it's still too loud on stage, you know, technically. I, I really shouldn't be doing this. Well, but that has to but be I, a hard thought. For somebody you know? who lives music like you do, mm. is like, wow, I can lose my hearing if this doesn't stop. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. Okay. I mean, I'm, I can hear you take, just fine. Take you care know. of yourself. <laughs> we're, we're worried about it. Because we want more loud well, see, Burma. Yeah, right. I would either stop playing entirely. You know, it's like a football player. If they love playing football, they're not going to mm-hmm. stop. Cause, God, I might break my elbow. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to stop them from playing because then they won't be football players anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen. Uh, can we have another great Mission of Burma song, please? <laughs> We'd be happy to oblige. <laughs>
Da, da, da. I love that song. Max Ernst from Mission of Burma's first incarnation. We have been thrilled to have Mission of Burma as our guests on Sound Opinions. We want to thank uh, Roger, Clint, Peter, and Bob for being our guests today. Thank you so much, guys, for coming in. Thanks Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. That was Mission of Burma performing live in the Jim and K. Maybe studio at WBEZ in 2006. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you find such things. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Andrew Gill. I was sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone. Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, it's Elliot in Des Moines, Iowa. Calling about the Velvet Underground and Nico episode. I have massive respect for the the Velvets. Um, I don't disagree with anything you said about the influence they had and about how incredibly artistically daring that record is. I just don't like to listen to it. <laughs> uh, maybe a couple of songs I like. Uh, I'm waiting for The Man and, and, and a couple others. Um, even Venus and Furs I kind of dig, but I despise heroin. I think it's just a bunch of aimless noise. Uh, especially The last two songs especially are just noise, nothingness. I, I can't do it. That one it just is one of those records that I love thinking about it and reading about it and totally respect it, but I'm like never going to choose to listen to it again for the rest of my life. I don't know, but you guys did a great job with uh, talking about it and explaining why it's so important. Thank you. Bye. Hi, this is Bronwyn, and I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. And the first time I heard VU, I was in San Francisco. I was doing a photography shoot for a friend who was in art school, and he was just playing the heck out of the VU, pretty much the entire library he had at the time. And Nico really stands out. It's just She's a phenomenal singer. I think she really made the band sound that much greater. And 
some of my favorite karaoke stuff. So thanks guys for playing it. I'm having a blast. Cause everybody knows the thing she does to please. She's just a little tease. See the way she Yeah, this is Bill from Georgia. I was calling about the Velvet Underground segment, and um, if you listen to a lot of early REM, you can hear a lot of droning guitar. Peter Buck, I think, was influenced by them a lot. Um, the Reckoning album, I think, has a lot of that stuff on it, a song called Time After Time. Time after, time after Enjoyed the segment. Thank you. Hey, Jim and Craig. It's Mark from Nashville. Um, Colin, I just heard uh, one of your callers complaining about your Neil Young shows. And let me just say this. You need to do more Neil Young shows. To say that Neil Young is not relevant is like saying that a sexy black Les Paul with a big tailpiece and three humbucking pickups on it is no longer relevant. If he thinks the songs are boring, then he's maybe listened to Harvest Moon once and hasn't gone through the the guy's catalog, which is absolutely eclectic, fabulous, exciting, exciting original music of a quality that that very few songwriters, singer-songwriters have ever achieved. More Neil. More. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.